What is it about? Computational communication science. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to a new episode of What is it about computational communication science? Today we're going to talk about how to audit algorithms online. My name is Mario Heim. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Leipzig for data journalism and computational communication research. Hi, I'm Emma Domaidi. I'm an assistant professor for computational communication science at Technische Universität Ilmenau in Germany. And I'm very happy to welcome today's guest, Juhi Kulschrechta, is joining us for this episode. Hi, Juhi. Hi. You are an assistant professor of computational social science at Uni Constance at the Faculty of Political Science. And before, you were a postdoctoral researcher at computational social science at Gesis. And mm-hmm. you hold a PhD in computer science at Max Planck Institute for Software Systems. Your research is focusing on studying online news and information consumption, online political communication, online social media, and finally the role of online algorithmic intermediaries in shaping people's online information diets. So basically, you are a perfect guest. And maybe we could try to start with a question, what makes actually algorithms online a research object? That's a great question and a question that I should be able to answer given the introduction that you've given. But maybe before we even start with what makes algorithms online a research object, let's just try to disentangle some of the terms in that question itself, right? So what do we mean by algorithms online, first of all? So in my research, typically when I'm talking about online algorithms, it's literally every algorithmic piece of code that you may encounter on your daily, you know, business on the web. So if you go to Mm -hmm. an e-commerce site, and you're trying to you know search for some book the search system itself is an algorithm and when you search for it you know you'll see a bunch of options that are shown to you those are recommendations or the results of these search algorithm those are also algorithms specifically i'm talking about these kind of information retrieval or information curation algorithms which are basically the search and recommendation systems but also could be advertising algorithms and if you think about it you kind of encounter them on pretty much every website that you go on. So it could be a social media site, it could be web search, it could be entertainment, things like Netflix. All of them are kind of powered by these information curation algorithms. And the question then is, why is this a research object? A very simple short answer to that is because it tailors what we see online. And if we accept and assume that what we read and see online modifies our beliefs about the world around us, then we need to understand what kind of an impact these algorithms are having. So that's really at the intersection of technology and social sciences. Algorithms as a a very basic technological concept of steps that the computer needs to follow, but then Mm -hmm. the outcome of this is really driving our attention. It uh, mm-hmm. shows us on what to focus, the thing that is the topmost search result or the thing that appears to us the most on, on, on our Netflix screen. Mm-hmm. Why should we conduct research on that? So there have been field studies already that have shown that not only do people see the higher ranked results more because you know they're right at the top of the results page, but they also 
tend to implicitly trust them more so if something comes up right at the top of the of the results whether from a search engine or from a recommendation system people tend to put their trust in it they really believe that this could be correct right the other thing that is important to understand is the part that you mentioned about tilting the attention so the these algorithms are essentially kind of saying here is some subset of information from the world that you should focus on and that you could trust and depending on what information is being shown to me or let's say shown to you we may end up forming different world views and this specifically happens in the situation where these algorithms personalize for individuals so you might have heard of some of these kind of common debates about filter bubbles or echo chambers which are somehow said to affect people's online information consumption but not just that but also affect their beliefs which can lead to let's say undesirable outcomes for the society such as polarization these issues kind of lie at the core of why we may want to specifically look at information retrieval algorithms online and they're huge right i mean the impact of these things is the one aspect of it but the other one is that there is essentially no place on the internet where we don't stumble over such personalization you mentioned that and i think that's very important to highlight because the current web as we see it is driven by intermediaries or platforms that are mm -hmm. built to drive our attention to certain but not to other search results or recommendations or content so in mm -hmm. essence it's really everywhere and this makes it very relevant to social mm -hmm. science research and it's leading to this concept of algorithmic authority or power right so these intermediaries or these platforms kind of really have the gatekeeping power of deciding what you see and what you don't see right and what makes it even harder for let's say independent researchers or watchdog organizations to keep an eye on this is this whole personalization bit because i don't know what you're seeing and that makes it really hard to get whether there is a problem or not maybe later on we'll talk a little bit about how we can overcome this but this inherently is a hard problem to solve and of course besides the topics you already mentioned like filter bubbles and echo chambers we have as well new topics like the question of fairness so who might be disadvantaged by these algorithms and of course mm -hmm. this again brings social science concepts into the mm -hmm. into the game because we have to question what is fairness and we have to define somehow how we want to see this so for example one idea is now that algorithms are introducing a lot of bias so I, I thought maybe we might discuss what, what are actually bias. I thought maybe we can just have a look at a short definition from Friedman and Nissenbaum uh, that has been cited a lot of times in, in literature on that. And they say bias in computer systems is a systematic and unfair discrimination against certain people or group of people to the advantage of others. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. But bias by itself is an inherently complex concept to kind of capture it within a definition and there are multiple other definitions out there and what makes it even more difficult is we need a concrete definition to be able to operationalize it what that means is if if i don't have a definition that i can convert into a formula to measure the bias that is being introduced by the algorithms i cannot do any of my studies and that's really much harder a problem than people realize and it's also a very good example of why computer scientists and social scientists need to work together to solve this problem 
in some sense bias is a concept that a lot of the social sciences have thought about and studied for a long period of time so there is much that the computer scientists or the technologists can gain from from the social sciences in solving this i think an additional difficulty for defining it also is that there is an inherent bias in it i mean if you have a selection of search results you need to arrange you have to by definition favor some results over others you have to put something on the first position so there is a bias in there or a, a selection in there anyhow it needs to be that's the definition of, of the search engine in that case the definition of a bias then has to adhere to a normative question what do we want to be on top do we want to be the result on top that is the most accurate answer is it the one that we want to see because they paid the most money to be on top of of the search result list do we want to have the result on top that is from the most respected i don't know representative source so there is a, a question in that that we need to address that we so far have not addressed and that the intermediaries or platforms themselves have just gone out and started doing and and following maybe tree can you talk us a little bit through what are typical modes or are typical motives for for the intermediaries or platforms how they kind of sort things how they rank things what are, what are you looking for even before that right so when computer scientists let's say we are not profit making machine we're just it's just a developer who's creating an, an information retrieval system then Mario, you you rightly pointed out that there has to be some objective with what results should come up and typically for these information retrieval systems the kind of metrics that were used were like relevance is the result that's coming up relevant to the query that i made or relevant to my preferences as measured by the algorithm another thing that used to be typically or is still used for measuring the performance of these retrieval systems is how timely are the results you know in most of these cases you don't want like results from like three years back right you want what's happening right now there could be other things like what you pointed out like the authority of the sources that are coming up so for example it could in a new system mean like the kind of reputation of the media outlet but for example on a social network it could mean like how reputed is this user on the network and that could be number of friends or followers that could be you know how long they've been there are they a verified account and a whole bunch of other things like these uh, play into it another thing could be in some cases the popularity of the content itself so especially on kind of like social media like systems or content systems like youtube or netflix you may want to bring up things that a lot of other people have engaged with and interacted with like right so there are a whole bunch of different metrics that could play into how a designer of these systems decides what comes up at the top now on top of that if you are a profit making machine you would also like to make money out of this and how do you make money out of it is to kind of keep people engaged you want your users to stay on your system and keep using it that means that engagement becomes the top priority the objectives that are in mind while designing these systems are not really related to bias or fairness as such Julie, I think you walked us through very well and we can basically summarize that there might be different biases depending on the goals that are behind our so-called web reality that is definitely constructed and that all these biases do not occur naturally, right? They are maybe a result of these different interests. And I think this is very important because we might not realize this as, as users browsing through YouTube, we might not realize that this is yeah, what we are seeing. 
We have actually a lot of examples that have been covered in research on biases, for example, on partisan news, gender or racial biases in Google search and so on. So we have different examples, but what, what are the possible effects of these bias? Well, from the effect perspective, if a platform tries to keep you on their website for as long as possible, they try to increase engagement, they might want to show you content that is very emotional, content that is very arousing. In that sense, as a user, you might not get the information you were looking for, but you get content that drives you crazy, but it keeps you on the website. So in that sense, the platform from observing you while using it learns that, well, that worked well. I should show them more emotional content. I should show them more maybe polarizing messages. I should show them more partisan news or anti-partisan news. And as you can already hear from the vocabulary I'm putting into that is one issue could be an increasing polarization that drives people toward more political extremes. To some extent, maybe because they saw very highly partisan content on, for example, a social media platform. And, and you point, point out a really important issue over here. So you said that the algorithm learns from your behavior, and that's really important to keep in mind, right? These algorithms do not exist in a void. First of all, when they are actually developed, they are developed with human data. So the kind of underlying logic of the algorithm is sometimes trained on human data, which by itself can you know, have the pre-existing biases in the society embedded in it. And on top of it, once they're designed and they're de deployed in the wild, in users are interacting with them. And not only are the users getting impacted by what the algorithm is showing and perhaps revisiting their beliefs and adjusting them, but the algorithm itself is also learning from what the individuals are doing and changing its behavior. So if it sees that you read a lot of political news, it may start showing you more and more political news. Then it infers that within the political news, maybe you you kind of restrict yourself to a certain spectrum of the political news, it would show you more of those. So these are essentially like really complex socio-technical systems where the social and the technical both are important and both together have the end result, which may be bias or lack of fairness or some discriminatory behavior. We also saw that in the past, not only with social media systems, but also with other systems, if they were trained on data that presumably was unbiased because it was natural data, but mm -hmm. then turned out to be very biased. A typical example is predictive policing. You look where police is looking for places where things are going to happen, where trouble might come up. and. A system is introduced to look into this data from the past and then predict for future settings where different police cars, for example, should do their rounds. In that, of course, inherent to this data learning process is that it will predict that things will happen where they happened in the past, which makes the police go to quarters or districts where crime might be more visible since police in the past probably did not do that in an unbiased way, the system reproduces these biases and reinforces them. We're also in the literature talking about this effect as a rich gets richer effect in the sense that the pile that already is pretty rich in terms of predictions is the pile that the system keeps predicting on. You may have also read about the term Matthew effects that really refers to the very same concept. 
And in the context of online algorithms, we can think of the job sites. There, if you think about it, if the algorithm there learns that employers tend to hire a certain type of individuals, you know, based on their gender or their racial background or, you know, like the location where they live, it may rank those individuals higher just to keep people engaged more in their system. And as you can imagine, that leads to a systemic unfairness or discrimination towards others who may have similar professional qualifications, but do not have these other socio-demographic qualifications. That's another scenario where you know this could play a role, not only in the offline world, but also in the online world. And it entails a lot of questions that are not technological in essence. Mm -hmm. We're talking here mm -hmm. about also legal questions. We're talking about ethical aspects, lots of ethical yes. aspects. And again, a normative perspective of what is the fairness or the bias that we are willing to accept and what is too much of that. Yes. And one of the kind of positive changes in this context is that we see more and more ethics courses being taught in technological degrees, which I think is great. I mean, there are some teaching that I do, but there are actually truly people who are focusing on this. And we see this more and more in the computer science departments, not only in the interdisciplinary programs, but also in mainstream computer science programs. Because if you are developing the algorithms that are going to in impact the society, you might as well learn how to reason about them in terms of you know, legality or ethics. And we see a wide variety on that internationally. We have talked about this also in this podcast that the standards or the discussions about what is ethically applicable, what is ethically relevant, what is legally relevant varies from, for example, the US to Europe to Asian countries, especially with the discrepancy that the platforms we are talking about here are for Europe, usually US-based, but European law applies to them. So there is really a discre uh, discrepancy between what different cultures find necessary to address when we talk about online algorithmic biases or online algorithms. So I guess we tackled very well the question why we should look at algorithms. And of course, we find that there can be a lot of problems and already it is or it seems quite complicated. It's not so easy, I guess, to investigate algorithms because already I mean already the main ideas are complicated and then we will uh, go back uh, to later why we can't investigate the algorithm directly so we should start with a question how actually we can investigate algorithms and we mentioned in the beginning the title and auditing algorithms so I was like maybe we can explain first what does this mean at all to audit algorithms um, yeah, sure. The exciting part here is that the audit methodology is something that the social scientists developed and that the computer scientists who are interested in these, uh, in investigating these algorithms kind of adopted, right? So at the heart of it, it is fairly simple. So in the, in the audit studies that were proposed, I think, quite a few decades back, what they did was essentially to send in resumes of individuals, which looked nearly the same, except they differed on one of the characteristics. So like male or female, or the candidate being of a certain racial background. And this kind of like a randomized controlled experiment controlled because we're controlling for a specific you know characteristic and keeping everything else all other characteristics on these resumes the same and randomized because you want to have 
sufficient number of differences such that you can make statistical inferences. And they sent these out and then they just observed like which were the resumes that were accepted or people that like these supposed people hired. In fact, in the beginning, they even hired individuals to go in with kind of exactly the same resumes, right? So it was not even like just papers. They were like people with like different characteristics who were going in with exactly the same professional qualifications. And they observed that there were systematic bias against certain you know social demographic characteristics so even if your professional qualifications were exactly the same based on your gender or your race you were being disproportionately not hired and this was kind of like the historical audit studies that were performed by the social scientists so when the Computer scientists started looking at algorithmic systems, which were also some sort of decision-making systems, right? So if you think of an algorithm as a black box, you're kind of presenting to it certain qualities and the algorithm then makes a decision based on these qualities. We thought that one way to kind of do this is to do similar randomized control experiments. Let's let's take an example of the job site that we were discussing just a little while back. You could do exactly the same thing on a site like this. If you create kind of personas on this site, which are exactly the same on all the professional qualifications, but differ on certain other qualifications that in some countries, you're not even legally allowed to discriminate over. You can take a look at what kind of ranking results come up for these individuals and try to see whether the algorithm is leading to a discriminatory or an unfair situation for certain you know, societal groups. The same kind of randomized control experiments could also be applied in other scenarios. So, for example, you could say, OK, I'm going to create personas of individuals on YouTube and these personas would indicate to the algorithm their choices by following certain certain behavior so a very very simplified scenario would be there's one persona that only goes and reads you know some conspiratorial news so it looks at all the videos that are promoting this conspiracy and then the other persona all only reads not reads but watches the debunking videos right now the question is does the algorithm kind of realize these preferences of these two personas and amplify this content in the recommendations that it shows the individuals. By just changing this behavior, like which of the videos are they watching, the debunking ones or the promoting ones, but keeping everything else the same, you know, the time that they were created, any other content that these personas visit, any kind of profile attributes that are added, everything else if we keep the same. If we observe a difference, then we can infer that it is most likely due to this, this one single difference that exists between these personas. And this kind of goes back to the kind of audit studies that were done earlier. So this means that we can get a glimpse how this algorithmic system is working without the direct access to the internals of the system. Exactly. So this is basically like a black box audit, or I think it's also called input output tests, where you kind of just change the inputs to the system. So the input in the case of the job site was the, the profile information. And in the case of YouTube, it was the browsing history. And then you look at what is happening at the output level. So is the output that is shown to one of your agents different from another agent or the output for an agent. That means the ranking result that comes out is it differently favoring your different agents in the case of rankings. 
And this sounds truly like an interdisciplinary project because technical and social aspects are important. Mm -hmm. But it sounds as well as something that requires a lot of skills that are not easily available to everyone. So why don't we just ask developers from the platforms whether they could tell us how the algorithms work? You know, there is this kind of, it's a myth <laughs> that the developers know exactly what their algorithms do, right? Mm -hmm. So firstly, these are huge systems, right? So the, the piece of code that, let's say, we, we talk about Google search, there are hundreds, if not more, you know, engineers who are probably working on different aspects of this, this search algorithm. So it's really difficult to say what exactly does it do. But even more importantly than that, it's not just the program that we need to look into. We also need to kind of look at what was the data that the algorithm was trained on and perhaps also take into account the data that the algorithm would work on in the wild, right? Firstly, none of the intermediaries that we were talking about would give us access to this because this is, you know, their core product that they're talking about. And even if we were to somehow get access to it as a trusted body from the government or from the law or policy side, it's not easy to kind of look into this and infer automatically what the algorithm is going to do. So it requires a lot of skills that are not very, very common in, in let's say, non-technologists. Interestingly, also the developers from the platforms cannot easily answer which result, for example, comes up due to this fact. So they also developed software tools to help them audit their own systems, automated testing environments, which then again feed into the auditing or input-output testing systems that we currently use. So it really is a very interdisciplinary approach in that sense, giving back and forth tools and, and, and knowledge to look into this. One additional challenge to these input-output systems or auditing might also be that we're doing essentially is using the platform in an automated way though, but we use the platform. That might sound trivial, but it might also be more than that. First, we kind of use resources from the platforms. Now you could argue that a huge platform should be fine with a few hundred requests from our projects. And that might be true for things like a search engine. But if we start to audit through input-output tests, for example, social networking sites, social media, we're not only interfering with resources from the platform, but we're also suggesting to other users that we are a user, which we aren't. And we're back to legal and ethical questions. Is that what we want to do? Deceive others, maybe, by using or pretending to use these systems? Are there any other ways to look into this or to overcome these issues? Um, before we go there, just one more point. So not only are we deceiving them, but sometimes we might be using their data without their consent, right? Because they become part of our study. And that's also a big issue, which, you know, in the earlier studies, I have to admit, I, I also didn't realize the gravity of this, you know, till the questions of ethics and the legality kind of matured and people were thinking more in detail about these. So Mario, you asked, what can we do instead of looking at the, at the code or the data, right? Or creating these kind of input output test platforms. One of the options is to actually take the help of the users. So get their consent to get their data. 
you know there have been policy and law legal developments that kind of make this easier for the researchers or individuals who are trying to audit these systems perhaps one of you would talk about gdpr and the research exceptions that it has but also recently in the us the computer fraud act was contested by a bunch of researchers and aclu and they actually got this to be changed such that it's not a criminal offense anymore if we want to do these kind of audit studies because it was right because the yeah. platforms claim that the data that users left at the platform kind of belonged automatically inherently to the platform so this way through the users getting insights from users based for example on such legal um, regulations can you tell us something about how common that is how difficult that is what challenges come with that so there are more and more projects that are coming up where you know researchers are reaching out to individuals to ask them to donate their data so this could be in the form of donating their browsing history or donating their their data from a specific platform so for example can you donate your whatsapp chats but it could also be in the form of donating their account in the sense that they perform certain activities that could go in the direction of these kind of randomized control trials where for example for search systems they could run certain search queries from their accounts because this would take into account this individual's browsing history and donate the results this was actually done by the Datenspender algorithm watch project in Germany and there are more such projects coming up in the US and the Netherlands at least in my opinion i think involving the users in studying the algorithms is definitely going to be the way forward another really popular way is now to kind of use what is called the web tracking data so these are individuals that are part of panels that consented to kind of being part of this studies and some subset of them also agree to install these browser tracking pieces of code on their browsers such that we can really see you know what are they browsing one after the other and we can in addition also so you know do surveys with them to try and understand their motivations to try and understand what their existing attitudes or opinions are and then see how they being exposed to affects their attitudes and opinions in the offline world right so this is another kind of combined data source that is being used to get a better sense of what is happening online and how it's impacting people and you can again see that this combines like kind of the tracking device which is a very technologically promoted kind of a device with surveys where the social scientists actually have been conducting for past so much time so like i think combining our strengths actually is leading to probing device that's even more powerful than what we could do just mm -hmm. by ourselves yeah you're yeah i guess i agree of course completely but but we have to mention that of course these methods require strong incentives And especially, it's not so super easy to motivate what you would call an appropriate sample of participants. Mm -hmm. The question is, do we introduce a new bias mm -hmm. if we use these methods, for example, that we have only the people who are skilled digitally can provide their data or are interested to provide their data? A little bit like the situation we have maybe with lab experiments where we normally have student participants and there is a discussion going on whether the results are in the end valid mm -hmm. or not. So, of course, it doesn't mean that we can't come to this point, but maybe that's something we just need to think about while we are introducing these methods. Yeah, And the platforms themselves do not exactly support this kind of research, <laughs> I would say. So, again, it remains complicated, maybe. It varies, right? It varies a lot from 
platform to platform. Mm-hmm. And um, since uh, Julia has mentioned the Datenspende project, the data donation project by Algorithm Watch, they, for example, asked users to install a browser extension to use with their platform data, especially with data from, from Facebook. And Facebook tried to get their plugin stopped, try to get their extension out of the plugin stores with referring with the reference to automated approaches, automated auto auditing approaches into their platform being illegal due to their terms of service. So that's really something that is very much going on right now. Lots of legal fights, pre-legal fights between research and platforms, from my impression, predominantly with the US-based platforms, but I'm not sure whether any one of you has more insights into this also on a more global perspective. I don't think I've heard of examples from other places. I think Europe is actually a really good place to do this kind of research because in some sense, already if you read the news, you see that the European policymakers are holding these big companies accountable for you know, what happens on their platforms. It's, it's a fertile ground to do this kind of research. The policymakers want empirical evidence to be able to design better policies. You're right, Julie. There is also a lot of ongoing discussion around other aspects of data sovereignty online, getting that back to users, especially in the European Union. The Digital Services Act is one such example. GDPR was or still is one such example. And there are others, seminally in Germany, with the so-called Netzwerkdurchsetzungsgesetz, the Network Enforcement Act, which forces large platforms to a certain responsibility when it comes to handling basically user data, be it with regards to hate speech, be it with regards to biases, be it with regards to who owns which kinds of data. So there's lots of ongoing discussion on that, more and more based on empirical grounds. I completely agree with you on that. I think that's a a well or a good development. And currently, my impression is that Policymaking is at a stage of trying to find the right normative grounds. Really, what mm-hmm. is the bias that we want? Do we want a, for example, a news recommendation system to depict and include the news that everybody reads on other websites or offline as well? Or do we want to include a news recommender system, for example, to give some space to minorities? Do we want a news recommender system to ascribe each news outlet with the same space of attention. So what is kind of the normative grounds that we'll be built on? <laughs> so that's that's really not a question, though, but we can look at it in the sense of how far have we come by now? What is the empirical ground that we're building on? And Julie, you have mentioned in the beginning filter bubbles as a very prominent example, and it has sparked huge discussions after this concept or this book was released and introduced. My question would be, well, first of all, what was the proposed thing about filter bubbles? What were they said to be? So, I mean, the concept was pretty easy and you can, you know, if I explain it to you, you'll see why it is so attractive for people. It essentially meant that if you're on, on the web and you have all of these algorithms that are curating the information for you and that are also learning from your preferences, would you end up being stuck in a bubble such that these algorithms only show you more and more of what you prefer and hide from you all other perspectives. If you are interested in indie movies, would you only be recommended other indie movies and completely miss out on you know things like Marvel movies? 
And that sounds ridiculous in the context of entertainment, you know, does it matter if you just watch indie movies and not the Marvel movies? But it becomes more important when you think about, you know, news, for instance, if you only see news from the perspective that matches your perspective, would you be completely cut off from the perspective of the rest of the society that may be contrary to yours? The reason why this, you know, why they said that this is a problem is, which I agree that this could lead to kind of a opinion segregation in the society, which could in extreme situations lead to what is called ideological polarization. So as a concept, it was necessary to talk about and, you know, it could potentially have harmful effects. So it really caught public fancy. But in most of the academic research and including my own, we did not find evidence for filter bubbles. So in most situations, these algorithms actually were exposing the individuals to a whole spectrum of information. So it was not just their perspective, but the individuals were choosing to focus on the information that best matched theirs. So even if there was there was a variety available, they kind of went for what they liked themselves. And this leads to the idea of echo chambers, which again, I think is a fundamental idea in the in communication studies, right? And also a one that dates back to before filter bubbles, even exactly. echo chambers is, well, the, the metaphor really is a chamber where the viewpoints that you have echo back to you from your kind of self-chosen surroundings. So while filter bubble, the filter bubble concept really is about a technological determination echo mm -hmm. chambers is more at the intersection of information science mm -hmm. and uh, social science again so filter bubbles are not a thing to put it very bluntly and short <laughs> are echo chambers a thing i think the answer to this is more nuanced so for many individuals they may not be but then for certain individuals let's say which are on the fringe of the opinion spectrums, these may be a real thing. And the question is, do we care about these, I don't know, 10% or 20% of individuals? I would say yes. On an average, this may not be a big issue, but on at like when we kind of drill down this, this may be an issue and there may be, or I think that there is need to address this, this let's say minority of people for whom this is an issue. Because as I said, you know, like if we have more of these isolated chambers of opinions, you kind of get more and more segregated from the rest of the society. So in my opinion, if we want cohesion in this society, we need to not only talk about an average individual, but also talk about what happens to the minority groups. Now, you mentioned that filter bubbles are very tech determined and echo chambers aren't. So mm -hmm. why do we talk about echo chambers when we talk about auditing algorithms online? What role do platforms play for echo chambers. Yeah, you're right. So on the web, in theory, we have this whole, you know, wide range of sources or individuals to connect with, which may or may not have similar opinions to us. But in practice, it has been shown that, you know, people connect to others who are similar to them. So homophily actually plays a really big role. That means that I would end like my friend network whether in offline world, but also on the online world, ends up being quite similar to me. This could also come in play when we choose about what news sources we decide to follow on, on the web to get news. I have my preferred sources because, you know, they match my worldview. And I, again, only read those on the web. So even though in theory, you would have access to everything. And there was this whole idea of democratization of, of the society because 
Now the internet was there with all these possible options. In practice, people choose what they like and what they like often tends to be, you know, very much in line with their prior beliefs. And very often entertainment instead of political news. Right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> This is as well an issue that, that uh, for example, in terms of news, we see that they do not play such a huge role on social network sites as we would expect. Can we talk about a very loud debate we have at the moment around the communication between some platforms, right, and independent research that could, for example, for the future allow us improve the situation. One thing that is for me very interesting that there is increasingly a debate coming from inside the companies that, at least in my perception, got a lot louder in the last year or the last two years. Activists focusing on unfairness, for example, against particular communities. So we know uh, maybe the case of Timnit Gebru is a very popular case, but there are a lot more people working on that. And I think this is really interesting because we are not used to this collaboration. Activists from inside the companies. So Facebook is not only Facebook. Facebook is also a lot of people working there and maybe feeling not super happy as well with creating echo chambers, I would say. I'm not sure what more I can add to what you what you said, MSA, already, because you summarized it really well. In my opinion, this is a very positive change, right? So just because you work for a company does not mean that you have to absolutely blindly follow every policy that the company is coming up with, because the policies are also built by the people within the company. So it's, it's a positive change. And again, going back to something that I mentioned earlier, I think if more of more of cohorts of technology, like students who are studying technology right now are being exposed to the ideas of fairness or ethics or legalities early in their education and then they go and join these big internet companies they already would have a foundation so this would hope my hope is that in the future this would not be one of individuals who I have to admit, are doing great work and they're standing up for themselves, but it should not have to be such a struggle, right? So if more and more individuals who are going to these companies have this background, my hope is that, you know, there would be cultural change that will come about within the companies themselves also. Uh, maybe we should take a little step back and really briefly introduce Timnit Gebru at this point. I, I can try very, very briefly. So Timnit Gebru was co-lead of the ethical artificial intelligence team at Google. And basically she was hired after she did not want to withdraw a paper that detailed some risks and biases of language models. So this was kind of huge thing on social media. And she opened the discussion very much about companies like Google and how they deal with their ethical teams that they basically hired to find such kind of problems, but then in the end, obviously weren't interested in their results up to the point that they even fired authors of these papers. So I think we talked about this more in detail in our very first episode. So you could go back and just listen to that if you are more interested in the topic. But maybe the most important thing for now is that we should try to build alliances with these activists as well, because we are not used to that, in my opinion. We are not used that we can team up with activists from the companies. Maybe if you are a computer scientist, you are more used to that because uh, social scientists weren't that much employed in such kind of companies. Maybe that is uh, why it was so new for me, that uh, so, such a news for me that we could team up and try to find solutions together. 
I would even say that I don't want to label someone as an activist. I would hope that everybody who is learning how to develop algorithms would learn the wisdom of deciding what an algorithm should or should not do the pressure on some certain individuals to be activists should you know in, in the longer run go down and it should be all of us kind of thinking actively about the impact of the technology that we create I think another thing that came out of her case also was that it again showed that these companies are doing their own research. They are um, having their own agency also in research terms and are very selective about what they share with us. Another very prominent example is Francis Hogan, who yeah. came forward with internal details about what Facebook actually knows about how it affects its users. They are doing social science very essentially and then really publishing only what they find necessary to be shared with the public. So in that sense, I think if we think about moving forward in where should we as researchers move next, building our own agency and strengthening that really is or should be at the very forefront. And finally, of course, it's quite interesting that Tim Nitgebru founded the so-called Distributed AI Research Institute in December 2021 that is supposed to be a space for independent, community-rooted AI research free from big tech's pervasive influence, as it's described on the website. So this could be an interesting project and maybe one among a lot of projects to come that could help us actually to audit algorithms and to make the results available to a lot of people outside of academia or politics, I would say. So what are the directions besides yeah, new institutes uh, that we could create? So where should we go next from here? One, one kind of development that has already started happening is we are kind of moving away from this debate about filter bubbles, etc., and more focusing on, you know, discrimination or unfairness in in how individuals or perceptions of individuals are represented on these online platforms and the visibility that they get. And of course, here the kind of the questions of ethics or even the normative questions of like, what should be, what is that we should aspire for, they kind of play a big role because it's not absolutely clear in every scenario, you know, normatively, what would be the best outcome. Also, these next steps and currently ongoing developments, as you pointed out before, Juhi, are not looking at the whole population, but moving more and more to focus on individuals, on smaller groups, on individual reflections of mm -hmm. information. How is the same information perceived and or depicted by platforms to different people? And how is it then perceived? Something that is or has also become more important in the last two years with the pandemic moving everybody to home offices or a lot of people to home offices and thus strengthening the use of online communication channels, which highlights a necessity to look into the individual reflections of information, which comments do you see when you read the same news article or when you get the same news article via social media and which comments do I see? How does this influence my perception of a public opinion when I see only some comments and some other like numbers than you do. Yeah, a kind of related concept there is how people perceive the agency of algorithms. So I think that has also evolved over time because, you know, they've been exposed to the role that algorithms are playing in like normal news that they read every day. Another thing that kind of needs to be taken into account is 
how do they think of algorithm what's what's their mental model and how do they adapt their behavior to what an algorithm tells them to do because yes we have focused on a lot of potential negative effects of what algorithms could do but maybe going forward we could also try to maximize the potentials of the algorithms for good for example we could specifically design algorithms that nudge individuals to read more balanced news and this is already being done so it's not like it's never been done but how, how do we actually do it in a way that is acceptable to the to the individuals and that actually leads to a positive change or you know how do we create algorithms that are aware of the biases and then come up with some fair rankings now again like what does fair mean and how do we actually then create algorithms and that do that so i think there is there is work to be done on using or utilizing these algorithms for the positive and i hope to see more of that and again i think that sounds like something that computer scientists should solve but it's actually not it it again has to happen in in an interdisciplinary you know environment where the questions of what is it that we are aspiring for has to be answered by a interdisciplinary team you know purely technologists are not equipped as yet to to answer this yeah and of course uh, besides social scientists we should as well include diverse stakeholders right the communities who are mm -hmm. affected by these algorithms to give them a voice in how to shape those algorithms and i think this is very much a discussion as well or a direction to go from here maybe as well go outside of academia <laughs> and, and then see how we can do this together and i think the responsibility is on the academics to make sure that their work is accessible to non academics also and i think there is more and more effort in this direction with even podcasts like yours right so it is kind of distilling what we are doing you know what phd students or researchers are doing and making it accessible to all the people who are interested in this topic going starting right from undergrad level that's just one example but we need to do more and more of this where we do science communication that is actually understandable by individuals outside of the pure scientific community and this is not so easy for us <laughs> a good science communication is uh, of course complicated but i think it's a learning curve and i my impression from this field of computational communication science or this wider field of computational social science is doing or taking great steps in that direction in building standards and norms and methods and even coming up with new coefficients and statistical methods to find a canon is that a word a main route to to follow to increase also trust into these new methods to come up with best practices on how to audit online algorithms how to understand biases and how to then also communicate these these findings and another kind of related issue is that of kind of reproducibility or replicability because these algorithms are constantly evolving you know we are in this kind of bizarre situation that you know what you observe today may or may not hold tomorrow so i think we as an academic field firstly need to think about what is the core thing that kind of persists across time that we may want to focus on and also how to make our you know research outputs reproducible so how do we share them with others in academia or outside such that they are still meaningful once the algorithm has changed to a newer version of it on the positive side it gives us something to do forever on the negative <laughs> side we need to think about you know we need to think about then how do we distill what we are doing into meaningful change beyond our research 
And that's where all these partnerships come into play, which, you know, Mario, you and MSA already pointed to or alluded to during this podcast. I feel like we touched so many topics today and that we that we gave a brief intro into the topic, but that one day we definitely should come back together and discuss more in detail what happened in between, because it's such a dynamic field. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. We should, at some point, we should do this. Absolutely. <laughs> Replicate the, the episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chewie, for joining us in this first of the Replicative Podcast episode <laughs> series. Uh, it was great. We got a lot of insight and I think we touched so many things to really also have a lot of different follow-up episodes on, on a lot of different questions that we tackled. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me here. And I think this episode is as well a very good example of how easy it is to talk among social scientists and computer scientists. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you, the listeners, for joining us, for listening to the podcast. If you have any suggestions or ideas for future topics, future guests, future discussions we should have, please reach out to us, share the podcast if you fancy sharing it, and uh, join us in... Hopefully four weeks and we'll be back. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. What is it about? Computational communication science?